that's all right. I don't mind telling it again. After all these years, I think I see it more clearly in my mind's eye. Well, then these old eyes can see you right now. Let's see. As I recall, it was kind of a cool night, a, a touch of winter still in the air. And by the time we got the flocks back to the sheepfold, well, it was already dark. So we made our cook fire, not just to cook our food, but, but for warmth and light as well. So we'd sat there for a while after we'd finished eating, and then Thomas turned to me and he said, Well, Eli, it's your turn to be the gate. Well, it wasn't my turn at all. It was just that I was the youngest of the lads. Uh, actually, that was, that was the first year that I had stayed overnight with the flocks. But I didn't mind that the fellas picked on me a little bit. I actually kind of enjoyed being the gate. Maybe I, maybe I better explain what I mean by that. There were, there were actually four shepherds, four flocks of sheep, and, and each day we would each take our flocks out to the hills to find pasture. But at night, at night, we would bring them all together and put them in the one sheepfold. Actually, I suppose it had been built generations before me, it was a, an overhanging, an outcropping on the hillside, almost like the opening to a cave. And at some point, shepherds before me had built a low stone wall to enclose the sheep. But there was no gate. And so one of the shepherds each night would have to sit and lie and sleep in the opening, just to make sure that none of the sheep got out and, and nothing else got in. Well, that's when it happened. There in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, he was standing there right in front of us. People ask me what he looked like. I thought about that a lot over the years. And here's the best explanation I can give. You know when you're sitting on the, on the shore of a lake and the sun is going down on the other side and the light from the sun is shining on the ripples on the water and it breaks up into a thousand shining pieces? That's what he looked like. That's what he looked like. Shining and glowing as if he had come from the very presence of God. And somehow the glory of God had wrapped itself around him and was radiating out through him. It was scary. Yes, it was scary, all right. In fact, one of the fellows cried out in fear. Though none of them would admit it later on. But it wasn't me. It was one of them. And he wasn't up in the air. No, he was standing there on the ground, talking to us face to face, like I'm talking to you now. But he was big and somewhat scary, and we were afraid. I suppose that's why the first thing he said to us was, Do not be afraid, he said. Do not be afraid, for the news I bring you is good news. Of a great joy which is for people everywhere. For to you is born this day in the city of David. And then he pointed right down there to Bethlehem. As if we didn't know what the city of David was. He said, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then he said, 
this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Well, all of a sudden, we were surrounded by an army of the heavenly messengers. And I looked at them, and it was as if they would die if they didn't shout out praises to God. Glory to God in the highest heavens, they said. Peace to men on earth. Then all of a sudden, they were gone. We waited for a while while our eyes adjusted to the darkness because it had been so bright. And pretty soon Thomas said to the guys, well, let's do it. Let's go down to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass that the Lord has made known to us. And then he turned to me and he said, Eli, you stay here with the sheep and we will be back in no time at all. And off they went. They stomped out what was left of the fire and they headed down the hill toward Bethlehem. I watched them till they disappeared in the darkness. And all the time I was sitting there, I was getting more frustrated and, I will admit it, more angry. I mean, hadn't the shepherd been talking to me too? Why should I have to stay here with the sheep just because I was the youngest? So I decided I was going to go too. So with a quick prayer to God to watch over the sheep and a stern warning to the lambs to stay where they were and not wander off, I headed down the hill to catch my friends. When we got down to Bethlehem, I suppose we hadn't even thought about how we would find the baby. The town was quiet and still. There was nobody stirring at all. And we walked through those quiet streets till finally we found him. There were a group of people there already. They said that the midwife had left. But there was an elderly woman there that I recognized from the village who was helping to take care of the new mother. Oh, the new mother. She looked so tired, worn. They said that she had arrived just that night in Bethlehem, having come all the way from Nazareth up in Galilee. No wonder she was tired. And now to give birth to the baby. And there was her husband standing there. And he was, he was holding his walking stick like this, as if he might need to defend his new little family. And there was the baby was just as the angel had said it would be. They had wrapped him in swaddling clothes. They put new straw in the manger and they laid him there for a bed. People ask me, what did he look like? Well, I've not seen many newborns, but I suppose he looked like every other. He was very little and kind of wrinkly-like. But oh, there was something about him. Something about the moment. And all four of us, nobody said we had to, but all four of us, we got down on our knees before him and we found ourselves worshipping a baby in a manger. What a moment it was. It was as if all the world was silent at that moment and there was not a sound except the soft flurry of the of the breeze high in the sky and the gentle sound of the baby breathing as he slept there in the manger. What, what did you call him? Thomas asked his father. Oh, 
We have named him Jesus, he said, just as the angel told us to. The angel, I said. Why, we just saw the angels up on the hillside. I'd forgotten that when you're around a sleeping baby, you need to be quiet. Everyone shushed me. And then Thomas told his father and mother what we had experienced up on the hillside just outside Bethlehem. His mother and father did not seem surprised at all. They smiled and they nodded as if you might expect to see an angel every day. I suppose I could have stayed there all night. I didn't want to leave him. Then, after we had been there for a little while, all of a sudden, Thomas said, Eli, the sheep, what have you done with the sheep? And I realized I had forgotten all about them. As quickly as we could, we quietly left the baby and his mother and father and headed back through those still, quiet, dark streets of Bethlehem and then ran all the way back up the hill to where the sheep were. Well, by the time we got them counted, yes, they were all still there. It was late into the night, and the other fellows lay down, and they were soon asleep. (laughs) But I sat there for a long time, looked up at the stars and the sky, looked down at that little town of Bethlehem, so dark and quiet. Who would have known that in those dark streets there was shining an everlasting light? The hopes and fears of people everywhere were somehow being met in that little baby sleeping in the straw in a manger. Well, I've probably told you more than you wanted to hear anyway. Oh, you want to know what happened to the baby, do you? (laughs) Well, that's another story for another time. But... I will tell you this, that night in the little town of Bethlehem, oh, that was only the beginning. So we're going to sing the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And from your seats, we invite you to join along with us or just sit back and think about those words um, that we're singing of this song. Born of Mary and gathered. 
their watch of wandering love. Oh, morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. Oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and answer in, be born in us today. We angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. been with us these Sundays that were leading up to Christmas, you know we have been looking at some of the best loved Christmas carols to inspire us and motivate us during this uh, this Christmas season. And today we're looking at the the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I would guess that, uh, that most of us have in our minds a picture of what Bethlehem must have been like that night, that sleepy little town about five miles from Jerusalem where Jesus was born. That was sort of what inspired the writer of this Christmas carol. His name was um, Phillips Brook, and uh, he was actually an Episcopalian pastor, the rector of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia. I find myself thinking about all the Christmas carols coming from England, but this was one by, written by a man in Philadelphia. And uh, he had visited the Holy Land in 1865, so this is about the time of, of the American Civil War. And uh, while he was there, he visited Bethlehem and was so inspired by it that three years later he wrote this poem, the words, the lyrics to this Christmas carol, and the church organist set it to music, and it was sung that year then by their children in their Christmas program. And children and those of us who are young at heart have been singing it ever since. Bethlehem, just a little town, 
known for one thing, and that is it was the birthplace of King David in the Old Testament. I've been, uh, had been leading a men's Bible study where we had gone, actually gone through First and Second Samuel, which is really the story of King David in the Old Testament. And they had, they had done the same thing that we do today with presidents or famous people marking their birthplace, like Herbert Hoover or Ronald Reagan. They sort of commemorated the birthplace of this greatest of their kings, King David in Bethlehem. And I was realizing that David lived a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. So Bethlehem exists back then a thousand years before Jesus. So now today, Bethlehem is a city that is 3,000 years old. Hard for us to imagine, isn't it? The little town of Bethlehem. Well, it has changed a lot today. If you were to visit it today, as Sally and I did when we went to Israel, you would find it to be a city about the size of Cedar Falls, just not quite 30,000 people. So it has changed a lot since the days of Jesus. And um, one, of the, one of the things that is neat about it is that there's a big, a big square in the, uh, in the middle of the city that's filled with vendors who are selling souvenirs and trinkets for tourists because tourism is the main industry in Bethlehem, and also vendors who are selling falafels. You know what a falafel is? Falafels are sort of the um, the national fast food of Israel. Uh, they're made with, uh, with lamb and chickpeas and other t- disgusting sort of stuff. Uh, but they, they love them and eat them all the time. Sally and I had tried them and did not like them at all. So when we were visiting Israel, we had been warned very sternly not to eat the food or to drink the water when we were out touring during the day. But it seemed like being there with the, those falafels, we could just see them being made there on the grills by the vendors. And so a lot of the people in our tour group um, took ate some falafels while we were there in Bethlehem that day. And uh, that night they all got food poisoning. Sally and I just smiled. We felt fine. The other really interesting thing about Bethlehem today is the Church of the Nativity. Uh, about 300 years after the time of Jesus, the Roman emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. His mother was a Christian. Her name was Helena. And one of the things that she did was to go back to Israel and to try to locate the places where the events in Jesus' life took place. One of those, of course, would be Bethlehem. And in each of those locations, she built a church. And so she built a large church there called the Church of the Nativity. It is the oldest Christian church in Israel, and the reason is this. The story is that when Israel was invaded by the Persians about a thousand years after the time of Jesus, the Persians destroyed all of the Christian churches. But when they went into the church of the Nativity, the place where supposedly marks the place where Jesus was born, they saw on the walls depicted pictures of the wise men, the three wise men. And the wise men were pictured as being Persian. And so when, when the Persian invaders saw these pictures of their countrymen on the walls of this church, they spared the church of the nativity. And so it still exists in Israel today. But if you went to Israel, you would find it very different than the kind of uh, Bethlehem that is pictured in the carol that we just sang that Phillips Brooks wrote about, you know, back hundreds of years ago. If you went to Israel today, 
um, you would find it much different. Now remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem because it was David's city. In fact, if you go back to some of the Old Testament prophecies, let me just read you what it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says, says this, he says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah. So he's trying to establish what, what village, what location he's talking about. He says, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Jesus was the Messiah to be the Lion of Judah, to come from David's clan. So there's a problem, isn't there? God chose Mary and Joseph to be the, the parents of Jesus. But where did they live? They lived in Nazareth, which is about 70 miles north of Bethlehem, up in Galilee. So how is God going to get Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem so that the baby can be born in the place where God said 500 years beforehand he would be born? I mean, I suppose God could have just said, Joseph... Joseph, pack your bags, take Mary, and go to Bethlehem, because that's where the baby needs to be born. He could have done that, right? But what did God do? How did God get Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem? He caused the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, to declare a worldwide census for taxation purposes so that everybody had to return to their their ancestral home. And for Mary and Joseph, that was Bethlehem. So even though she is very pregnant, Mary and Joseph head down to Bethlehem at just the right time so that the baby Jesus is born in Bethlehem just as God said he would be hundreds of years beforehand. I love the way God does things. Love the way God works. And so there are Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem then giving birth to Jesus. But today, what is Bethlehem like today? Take a look at these pictures. These were actually taken um, in July. In July, there was a 10-day uprising. Today, the city of Bethlehem is, uh, is occupied by the Palestinians. It's part of the West Bank. And there is in Bethlehem, as is often the case, you know, bloodshed, war, violence between the Arabs and the Jews in Israel. In fact, just last weekend... The, uh, the Israelis uh, struck at a Hamas training camp in Gaza because of rockets that were being fired by Hamas into Israel. And they retaliated and it continued the kind of strife and bloodshed that we see pictured here in the little town of Bethlehem. There were tanks and tear gas and killings in the little town of Bethlehem. And that's what you would find if you went to Israel today. And in fact, one of the things that I, um, that I read about and heard on the news was the concern that the Israelis had about the rising tensions there in these last couple of weeks, just at the time when tens of thousands of Christian pilgrims would have been coming to Bethlehem to celebrate the birth of Jesus there. When I see those pictures, when I read the accounts of what's happening in Bethlehem, it makes me sad, it makes me confused, it makes me angry. Because I think about Jesus as being the Prince of Peace. 
Remember, one of the things that was said about this one who would come to bring salvation to humanity, Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, now we're talking about 700 years before the time of Jesus, said, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's next? Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Jesus said, you know, peace I give you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. And I think about who I believe Jesus to be, and I look at the world around me, and I wonder, where is the peace? Two thousand years since Jesus walked the earth, and there has been no peace In fact, historians tell us there has never been a single generation in the 2,000 years since Jesus was born in Bethlehem when our world has experienced peace. There has always been war and bloodshed and hatred someplace in the world. And today, when I look at what's going on in the world, it's scary. I'm afraid for my two granddaughters. I'm afraid for them growing up in a world where, where terrorists break into schools and, and shoot hundreds of children. When whole classes of girls are kidnapped from schools and sold into slavery, sexual slavery, or sold as child brides. And we kind of feel here in Iowa, well, it may be happening out there, but not here, not here. How wrong, how naive we are. Would we feel that way if we, if we lived in Ferguson? Of course not. We live in an evil, violent world. And I cry out, Jesus, are you the Prince of Peace or not? Did you come to bring peace? And if so, did you fail? And it drives me to my knees and it drives me to the Bible. And I read what God says about the peace that he promises to us. Let me just read you a section from one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to some of those first century Christians. He's writing to some of the people who were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. And as such, they had really been excluded from a relationship with God. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without um, uh, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now listen to this. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the d- dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose... The reason he came, his purpose, was to create in himself one new person out of the two, and thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. I love what Paul says here about how we have peace as followers of Jesus Christ. And let me make clear, 
Let's all be very realistic about this. The peace is not going to be found out there. In fact, the world is going to be marked by continual violence and bloodshed and hatred and bigotry and abuse. That in fact, the Bible says those are going to become more and more marks of the end of time. That those things are going to get worse, not better. And that the peace that's to be found in Jesus Christ is found in two places. One, it's found in us in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that because of our sin and our failure, we live in hostility to God. That we don't live neutral lives. We live lives in hostility to God. Now, sometimes that's hard to believe, I think, that the world is actually hostile to God. I mean, aren't there a lot of good people? Aren't there a lot of people doing good things? And of course there are. One of the things that helps me is to picture it sort of like World War II. I mean, in Germany, in Nazi Germany, there were good people there who were baking bread and making shoes and growing food, but they were all in hostility to the Allies, to the United States, right? The food that they were growing was feeding the army. The shoes that they were making were to give boots to the soldiers. Even though they seemed to be doing good things and maybe helping one another, that they were in hostility to Jesus Christ and to God. Hostility to us. And when we live our lives apart from Jesus Christ, we are in hostility to God. And God says that Jesus Christ came to break down that wall of hostility. So God, part of what we mean when we say that God is a, is a just and a righteous and a holy God is that He, that He exists in, in opposition to everything that is sinful and evil and wrong in our world. And as long as we live in that sphere, we experience the hostility of God. Jesus broke down that wall of hostility so that God, the just and righteous and holy God, could not only forgive us, but move us from being his enemies to being his daughters and his sons, to bringing us into his family. And when that happens, there is a peace that comes into the heart of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He came and he brought peace. Second thing is, Paul says that he brought peace within the body of Jesus Christ in the early church, there were some strong divisions, racial, you know, ethnic divisions, especially between the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And Paul says that one of the things that Jesus did was to bring peace within the body of Jesus Christ to make us all one. And that is to exist in the church today as well. The Bible says that there's no longer male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, that at the foot of the cross we are all one, and as such we live as sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ. And that applies in not only within our congregation, but among the congregations of Jesus Christ as well. And one of the things that I love is that we're able to live as a congregation, as a church, in fellowship with our sister congregations in the Cedar Valley. That means a lot to me, to realize that whether they're Baptist or Lutheran or Episcopalian, that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and as such we live at peace with them. So maybe this...
Christmas has been less than peaceful for you for any number of reasons. But if the peace that you lack is in your heart, if it's in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I want you to know that God wants you to have peace. Jesus wants to bring peace into your heart. And maybe what you need to do as we begin this new year is to examine your relationship with God and see if, in fact, you know, you have confessed to Him your sins, to recognize your failures, to live up to the standard God has set for us, to realize that the punishment for your sins is death that was taken upon Himself by Jesus Christ on the cross, and that through Him, God longs to forgive your sins and to break down that wall of hostility and to move you from being an enemy of His to being His daughter or His son. Maybe tonight, you know, maybe tonight you need to get down on your knees by your bed and look at your relationship with God. Maybe even right now as we sing a couple songs before we go, you know, you need to do some business with God. If you have questions about that, contact one of the staff here at Orchard. We'd sure love to talk to you about it. Because I know that in the midst of this world of chaos and hatred and violence, that God wants to give you peace. Let's pray. Lord God, what a world we live in. How messed up. We need you. We need you to give us peace in our hearts. The kind of peace that gets us through the stressful, the tough, even the violent times. We confess to you that too often we live as if we're your enemies. When we desire to, to live as your followers. And so I would pray particularly for any of our friends here today who maybe need to take that step of surrender to you, of trusting their life to the one who is the Prince of Peace. Pray in Jesus' name.